0: Years ago, the Providence Journal ran an article with the headline, Big Names to Have Dirty Linen Aired. It went on to describe how government officials had squandered taxpayer dollars on projects that were not designed or produced very efficiently. Just what everybody loves, the government wasting taxpayer dollars. There are some examples of these projects that were given in the article. The first one was a tower at the Boston State College. It was 12 stories But the top five floors were not designed with the security checkpoints that were needed for whatever this building was being used for. And so those top five floors were heated and air conditioned, but they were never used because they didn't have those checkpoints. Another example was a parking garage that was built. After it was completed, they realized the only thing to be done with it was to tear it down and rebuild it because larger cars couldn't fit up the ramp. And then this one, which I don't really fully understand how this works, but the University of Massachusetts built a power plant, spent millions of dollars, multi-million dollar power plant, but they built it too far from the buildings that it was meant to service. I mean, I don't don't really understand. Don't you just run a longer extension cord? I'm not sure. But apparently it was useless where they built it, and so it was never used. Multi-million dollar power plant, never used. These seem like the very definition of a fruitless endeavor. None of us love putting effort and work into something that ultimately doesn't produce results. We don't like this in our jobs when we put energy and effort into a certain project only to have it fail or not produce what we want. We would never expend effort, say, into learning an instrument and spending the hours it would take to practice if we didn't think that beautiful music could result on the other end. Or maybe if you're an employer, you hire an employee that has lots of promise, and you're excited about working with them, and you train them, and you're paying them, and eventually you realize this person doesn't have the work ethic or the skills required to do the job. You've put in all the effort, but you haven't seen the fruit. Well, if you find these kinds of things frustrating, you're in good company because Jesus does too. And in the story that we're going to study today, we see Jesus having a very strong reaction To a religious system and religious people that were producing no spiritual fruit. Today's story is a favorite of mine, and not just a favorite because of what happens in the story, but because of what Jesus is doing and how brilliant Jesus is in the actions that he takes, and how Mark lays out the story so strategically to help us understand what's going on. We've been in this Find and Follow series where we're journeying through the gospel of Mark and the New Testament. We're working our way towards Easter, and and the climax of Mark's story of Jesus' life is is Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, all throughout this story that we've been studying, Jesus has been moving towards the final week. In fact, Mark's gospel is 16 chapters long. The first 10 chapters are on his three, three three-plus year ministry. And the last six chapters are on the final week of his life. Some people have said Mark is a passion narrative with a forward added on to the beginning. It's almost like we've been listening to an orchestra play and it started out soft and slow and every once in a while there's some punctuation with some faster music or some louder notes and And Jesus has been moving his way towards Jerusalem. In fact, he's told his disciples, "I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over into the hands of men. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again." The disciples didn't understand it, but Jesus says, "We're going back to Jerusalem." And in Mark chapter 11, it hits, and the music picks up, and it gets louder and it gets faster, and we've reached the climax of the story. And so from here, the 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 hits keep coming fast and quick. Mark gives us lots of details about what happens. In the last week of Jesus' life, it starts at the beginning of chapter 11 with the triumphal entry. Jesus rides in on, on a foal, a, a donkey, uh, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And the people are excited. They're waving palm branches. They're laying their cloaks on the road ahead of him. They're, they're shouting, Hosanna, which means, Oh, save. Probably they thought he was going to save them from the Romans. And Jesus enters into this this kind of atmosphere. Now, that story is usually celebrated on Palm Sunday. And when we get to Palm Sunday, a week before Easter, we'll revisit it. But just to position everything that we study between now and then, it actually happens after Palm Sunday. All of these stories, including the one that we uh, look at today. The main point of the story we read today is this. Faith produces fruit. Faith produces fruit. Or to say that negatively, dead religion... Does not produce fruit. Dead religion does not produce fruit. Faith, on the other hand, does produce fruit. So here we go. Mark chapter 11. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem. This was right after he rode in on the donkey and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Bethany is a small city just outside Jerusalem. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany towards Jerusalem, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Now, just a note about these fig trees. They produce figs twice in a year, in the spring and in the late summer and the fall. In the spring, before the figs appeared, leaves would appear on the tree. So this is what Jesus sees, leaves. It's not necessarily the case that figs are going to be ready yet, but it's the first sign that figs might be there. So he goes to see if the tree has any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs, an interesting detail Mark tells us. It's actually too early for the figs, and so Jesus doesn't find any. So Jesus says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers And the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them, or as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered this and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believe that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. That's a fascinating story. There is so much detail here. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive deep into the details figure out what the details of this story are actually saying. Then we're going to emerge out of that, see the big picture and ask ourselves what it means for us today. This passage has caused lots of difficulty, both for skeptics and scholars alike. Uh, Atheist Bertrand Russell, in his article, Why I Am Not a Christian, reflected on this story. He said, this is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs and you could really not blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. So he looks at the story and he says, Jesus is temperamental. Uh, he's he's uh, reactionary. Uh, he's hangry, right? He's hungry and he's angry. Do, do you ever get hangry? Or are your, do your loved ones ever get hangry? You know, you just stay out of their way when that happens, right? You, you guide them towards food before trying to engage them in conversation. I, I don't make good decisions when I'm hangry. And Bertrand Russell here is almost saying Jesus is just hangry, he's reacting out of his emotion, and certainly we can do better than that for role models. Even Christian scholars have debated this over the years. Uh, William Barclay, for instance, a notable theologian, said there's real problems with understanding this story literally. Uh, Or T.W. Manson, who says this, it's a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper, For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. Jesus could have done something productive here, produce the figs, rather than condemning the tree. In fact, this is the only miracle of destruction in the Gospels. Jesus destroys the tree. As I studied and I have five or six sources that I'm consulting regularly in preparing for these sermons through Mark, there was actually quite a lot of variety in the interpretations of this story within those five or six sources. People struggled to know what to do with this. I think it's brilliant, though, what Jesus does and what Mark does with this story. The fig tree story becomes less problematic when you understand The purpose that it's serving. Mark is using a literary device here known as a chiastic structure or sometimes called an intercalation. He uses it often. And what he does is he introduces topic A, which is the story of the fig tree. Then he moves on to topic B, which is the cleansing of the temple or the clearing of the temple. And then he returns to topic A and says, Look, the fig tree has withered. And whenever a a biblical author uses this kind of structure, the, the, the point in the middle is the main point. And and the points that bracket that are helping us to understand the main point. They might be adding meaning to it, but they're helping us to understand that main point. So the point in the temple, what Jesus does in the temple is the main point. The fig tree highlights it. So Jesus is not just grumpy and responding out of his emotion. He's actually enacting a parable. He's living out a story with a point about the temple. So in other words, he's looking at this tree, which is full of leaves. So from the outside, this tree looks like it's productive. It it looks like it it could satisfy hunger. But when he goes and looks closer, there's no fruit there. There's nothing to satisfy. There's nothing to nourish. It's, It's all show and no substance. Jesus is saying the temple which we're about to visit is exactly the same way. There's a religious system and there are religious people that look like they're productive. There's lots of activity going on. There's sacrifices, there's prayer, there's all of the things that that religious people think they ought to be doing, but when you go and look closer, there is no spiritual fruit being produced here at all. And I'm going to condemn the temple. Judgment has arrived for the temple. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't curse the tree and then rehabilitate it. Or he doesn't try to somehow say, well, we'll give the tree a little longer. He says, no, I'm, I'm cursing this tree right now. And he's pronouncing the same judgment on the temple. The the, the era of the temple is about to be closed in a dramatic way. R.T. France says a tree in full leaf at Passover is making a promise it can't fulfill. And so too is Israel. They're proclaiming a gospel of salvation by works, by a sacrificial system, and it's just not working. And its time has come to an end. So the fig tree is illustrating what happens in the temple. So so let's visit the temple then. What's Jesus trying to communicate here? I think it's multi-layered. And some scholars choose one interpretation over and above all of the other interpretations. I think the brilliance of this story is that Jesus is doing at least four things at once. I think the last two things that Jesus is doing is probably the most important. But I think he's doing four things in one. One action here when he goes and flips over the tables and drives out the people. First, we need to note this, this happens in the week of Passover. So, throngs of people are descending upon Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples are just a few of them who are coming into Jerusalem. This city of sixty to 120,000 people would swell double or triple its size in Passover times. So, Jesus is entering with a big crowd and people were coming to worship. They were coming to offer a temple tax that they had to pay and they were coming to offer sacrifices this Passover uh, festival had been established, of course, when, Jesus, when, when God led the Israelites out of uh, Egypt back in Exodus. And the angel of death passed over the Israelites as he pronounced judgment on the Egyptians. And they were instructed to remember this every year. This is a great celebration, one of the greatest of the year. So four things Jesus is doing as he goes through the temple, turns the tables and drives people out. One is Jesus is condemning extortion. There's extortion going on in, in, in the temple. So the temple was up on the temple mount. It was elevated. And there was different areas in the temple. The, the outermost area was the court of the Gentiles. This was supposed to be a place where non-Israelite people could go and worship God. Then there was the court of women, where Israelite women could go. Then there was the court of Israel, where Israelite men could go. Then there was the court of the priests. And even within that was the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was said to dwell. So Jesus enters the court of the Gentiles. This is where all of this economic action was going on. And he sees that there's extortion going on. So the people had to pay a temple tax. It was half a shekel every year. People would come with their currencies and they would come to exchange their currency into the temple currency. And the exchange rates were exorbitant. People, they were ripping people off in order to get this temple tax. There were sacrifices that needed to be made. So there was doves being sold. Doves were sold to people who were a little bit poor and couldn't afford another animal to sacrifice. And what was happening is you could buy that dove in the the temple court, or you could buy it outside the temple. But if you bought it outside the temple, it would be a lot cheaper, but probably the priests or the inspectors wouldn't accept it. And so they were forcing people to buy these doves in the court of the Gentiles for 20 or 30 times the cost of that same animal outside the temple court. Jesus saw this and made him furious. The Bible says lots about injustice and caring for the poor. And taking advantage of the poor is a sure way to experience the judgment of God. So that's the first thing Jesus is reflecting on, but it's not the whole story. The second part is the commercial activity happening in the court of the Gentiles was was, uh, making it impossible for people to worship God in this space. The commercial activity was restricting worship and prayer for the nation's. This was the purpose of Israel, right? Was to experience the blessing of God so that they could bless the world. But here, they were crowding out the Gentiles' opportunity to worship. There was a common misconception about the Messiah that when he came, he would come and cleanse the temple of foreigners. He would drive them all away. Instead, what Jesus does here is he clears an area for the Gentiles, for the foreigners, so that they can worship God. He doesn't push them away. He tries to give them space. So that they can experience God. See, Jesus is always concerned about the outsider. And we've seen that as we've journeyed through Mark in several places. Yes, his mission, as we learned in chapter 7, was first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. There's a a Gentile mission that is uh, deeply concerning to Jesus. It's a part of what he urges his followers to take upon themselves. The gospel is for all nations. By the way, did you know that in Abbotsford, by 2030, it's predicted uh, 40% of the population of Abbotsford will be visible minorities, which is the third highest percentage in Canada? The nations are here, and we ought to concern ourselves with them if we are to follow the example of Jesus, because Jesus is concerned that people of all race and tribe and tongue will experience Jesus. So, Jesus is condemning extortion. He's condemning the way that this commercial activity is preventing people from worshiping. Uh, Then we get to the last two, which are probably more significant and a little bit deeper. The, the, The third one is that Jesus is pronouncing the end of the temple system. He's condemning the system of religion that has been set up at the temple. David Garland says, His demonstration in the temple is a prophetic protest. That symbolically stops the activities that contribute to the temple's normal function. Right? If, if Jesus stops the money changers from doing their job, then the temple tax can't be paid. And if Jesus stops the doves from being sold, then these sacrifices can't be offered. Th- these are the functions of the temple. Jesus is interrupting them, prophetically saying these things are about to end. And Jesus has been saying this and will say this in, in what he's been saying all throughout the gospel of Mark. In, in chapter uh, 12, verse 10, he claims that he himself will be the foundation of a new temple. This temple will be built upon him and will be built of the people who put their faith in him. We are the temple of God. No longer will people need to go to a place to experience God or have a priest mediate between them and God. Because God's presence will dwell within us as his people. We are his temple. In chapter, 12, uh, in chapter 10, verse 45, rather, he refers to his death as a ransom for sins. So rather than needing a sacrifice to make restitution for your wrongdoing, Jesus says, my death is going to provide that function. My death will be the ultimate sacrifice because I am sinless. I am qualified to be offered on behalf of the the sinful people so that their sins will be atoned for and they can have relationship with God. You don't need to buy a dove anymore. In chapter 13, Jesus predicts the temple is going to be destroyed (laughs) physically. He says not one stone will be left on another. This building is coming down. In chapter 14, he celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples, but instead of reflecting on the Exodus event, he centers this meal now on his death and resurrection and says, whenever you eat this meal now, think about me. Think about the freedom that I am winning for you when I go to the cross. Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of the temple and the system that had been built around it. The system had been instituted in the Old Testament and had been perverted over time by the religious leaders, who we'll get to in a moment. N.T. Wright says, By stopping the entire process, even just for a short but deeply symbolic moment, Jesus was saying more powerfully than any words could express, the temple is under God's judgment. Remember, the fig tree was not, uh, was not uh, rehabilitated, nor would the temple be, not in its current system the sacrificial system says right was part of the temple system which had come to stand for the wrong things. And now it was part of the signpost system set up by God to draw the eye to the climactic achievement of Jesus himself on the cross. Faith in Jesus is no longer about offering the right sacrifices. It's not how one uh, sacrifices is not how one accesses salvation. Faith in Jesus is how one accesses this salvation, not by works. So Jesus is saying, this whole system is about to be radically replaced, and I have come to do it. So Jesus condemns extortion. He condemns how commercial activity is interrupting prayer and worship. He condemns the temple system itself, and then finally he condemns the religious leaders. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious elite, and they know it. Right? In verse 18, their reaction is, well, we're going to find a way to kill this guy. They know that this judgment, this prophetic action is against them. And so they react uh, in the way that they do. Now, it's fascinating the Old Testament uh, passages that Jesus uses here to illustrate his point. Uh, he, He quotes Isaiah 56. When he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This reflects Jesus' desire that the gospel, the the good news, would be for everyone. That the Gentiles would have a place to worship God. That they would be welcomed into the family. This was foretold way back in Isaiah 56. If we read uh, 56 verses 6 to 8, uh, this is what Isaiah says. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants... All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, those I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. In other words, this is bigger than just Israel. This is for all nations, and I will welcome them into the temple. I will welcome them into my family. And this new temple that Jesus is building is built of Jews and Gentiles together. And people of the day thought that was going to happen someday. Jesus is saying, no, that happens right now. And the fact that you haven't already been working towards that tells me that you've missed the point. The gospel is for all nations. You know, when Jesus dies, the veil in the temple that separates the presence of God from the people is torn in two, which symbolizes this presence of God is now accessible to everyone. You don't need to get through a priest to the presence of God. The presence of God is available to us all. And when Jesus dies, a Gentile centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. He's one of the people spoken about by Isaiah that will be welcomed into the family of God when they recognize who Jesus truly is. And when Israel and when we hold the gospel with a closed fist, we have missed Jesus' heart for the world. So that's the first thing that he says from the Old Testament. The the second quote is from Jeremiah chapter 7. And Jesus says that you've made the temple into a den of robbers. I'm going to read the passage from Jeremiah 7 verses 1 to 15 to understand the context from which this quote emerges and see if you can put the pieces together between what the, the prophet Jeremiah is saying and what Jesus is saying. So this is Jeremiah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house. Stand at the gate of the temple and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says, "Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, "This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord." If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not fall other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, and say, we are safe? We're safe to do all of these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple that you trust in. The place I gave to you and to your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Did you catch that? You catch the attitude of the leaders in Jeremiah? Jesus is applying the same attitude to the religious leaders of his day. You are doing all kinds of detestable things out there and then retreating into the temple to think that you're safe from the consequences of those actions. You know, think about the phrase, a den of robbers. Uh, Think about like a, a bear's den or something where it might hibernate or where it might sleep. A bear doesn't hunt in the den. The bear goes out of the den to hunt. And then it retreats back to the den where it thinks that it's safe. Yeah, this is the picture that, that Jesus is, uh, that Mark is using, and Jesus is using from Jeremiah. You go out into the world and you do all of these detestable things. You take advantage of people, you do not love people very well. You, uh, you're hypocrites in the way that you act. And then you come back to the temple and you offer your sacrifices, and you do your religious things and you think you're fine. But you're not. God will not be mocked. There will be judgment for the way that you're acting. Jesus wants your heart. Friends, this is where we need to stop and do some self-reflecting. To ask ourselves, are we like a fig tree that's covered in leaves, but has no fruit? I think there's lots of Christians today who are busy doing religious things but not producing any fruit. Okay, you might be busy with all kinds of religious things. You might serve in the church. You might give to the poor. You might give to the church. You might serve in a ministry. You might have your kids at a Christian school. You might listen to Praise 106.5. You might have a Bible on your coffee table so everyone can see it when they walk in. You might even open that Bible on a somewhat regular basis and you still might not be producing fruit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is looking at these people and says, I want your heart more than I want your actions. Your actions will follow if your heart is in the right place. But I want your heart. I want you to be fully committed to me in faith. And if you're not, there will be judgment coming. There is a judgment day where we will stand before God and give account for the things that we did. Are you producing fruit? When Jesus evaluates your life, will he see lots of the external things that you did that you thought gave you good standing with God? Or will he see that your heart was fully committed to him and he was able to use you to produce fruit? This is a question that confronts us out of this text. Jesus accuses these religious leaders in Mark 12 of robbing widows. And we remember in Mark chapter 7, Jesus blasted the Pharisees for being too concerned about external rules like washing their hands without ever evaluating the state of their own heart. They won't escape judgment. God will not be mocked. Jesus is pronouncing their condemnation. So Jesus goes into the temple. He sees extortion. He sees the, the commercial activity blocking worship and prayer. He, he sees the, the, the temple system that's about to end. And he sees religious leaders who are corrupt. And Jesus pronounces his judgment in the way that he does with his righteous indignation. So, let's finish up this story. The, the, the follow-up to that uh, account is kind of interesting. It almost seems disconnected, right? Jesus, uh, Peter, and the disciples see the fig tree the next day and it's withered from the root. This thing's completely destroyed. And Peter points out the fig tree. Hey, look, the fig tree you cursed is dead. And Jesus doesn't explicitly hear tie the, the fig tree and the temple together. Instead, he starts talking about faith and prayer and forgiveness, which seem disconnected but really aren't. And, and it's, again, brilliant how Jesus weaves these things together. So remember, faith produces fruit and Jesus is going to start to outline the kinds of things that happen when a person with faith puts their trust in Jesus, the kinds of things that will be produced in their life. Now, the first thing he says is that if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what, the ha- what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Now, we've turned that into a proverb. Uh, faith moves mountains, right? We sing it in some songs. It looks good on a coffee mug and, and so on and so and that's fine. That, that, that's, that's an okay way to do it. In fact, Paul uses that phrase in, in a similar kind of way in 1 Corinthians 13. I remember as a, as a kid always staring at Mount Baker and being like, you're telling me that if I have enough faith, I can say to Mount Baker, go throw yourself in the Pacific Ocean and it'll be done. Like, how is that supposed to work? Now, of course, I was a kid and taking this very literally, which uh, we could think about it proverbially or, or metaphorically. But But we have to realize that when Jesus first said this, it was attached to a specific context. They're standing by a fig tree that had just been withered, which was a reflection of the temple that they were looking up at on the temple mount. And perhaps they were even overlooking the Dead Sea. And Jesus is saying, if anyone says, take this mountain, the temple and all that it represents, this religious system that is based on works. And if anyone says to that mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, it will be done for them. In other words, if you can recognize this system for what it is and how it's not working and how it doesn't actually produce salvation or any kind of good spiritual fruit, if you can reject that and say, believe in your heart, have faith in Jesus and approach Jesus for your salvation and you pray along that line, it will be done for you. You will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, as Paul says. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not just saying your faith is going to remove obstacles in your life, though that is an application we can draw. He's saying this system of worship is completely done and useless. And if you put your faith there, you've invested in the wrong place. But if you will believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith in him and what he is about to do for you, the sacrifice that he is going to make on your behalf, you will experience salvation and eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying here. So he says, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Again, this is mostly talking about salvation. If you're praying for salvation, you can believe that what you've asked for, you have received. If you're praying with faith. Now, we cannot turn this verse into a. Uh, 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 a bumper sticker. We can't see Jesus or, or we can't see God the Father as a cosmic vending machine that just gives us whatever we want. We, we have to understand this prayer in the context of this passage and also in the context of the New Testament, which tells us that we ought to pray in line with God's heart. We align ourselves with what God wants. We pray in that direction and those things will happen. And then Jesus closes it off by saying, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so your Father in heaven may forgive your sin. Interesting way to close, because nothing prior to this has had to do with forgiveness, really. But Jesus says, this is something that you ought to be able to do. I think he says it because if we understand the grace of God, if we understand the forgiveness that has been given to us and the forgiveness that Jesus offers through the cross, then anything and everything that happens to us, any offense and every offense that is committed against us by another person can be forgiven. If we've truly understood the grace of God. Someone said to me a little while ago, uh, a victim of of incredible pain and hurt, said there's just some things that can't be forgiven. Now this person wasn't following Christ and because of that, I couldn't help but agree and say, yeah, I don't see how you could forgive that. But when we've accepted the forgiveness of Jesus, that means that we have taken a look at ourselves and realized just how broken and messed up we really are, how much sin resides within our own hearts, and just how much Jesus has forgiven us then we are motivated to offer that forgiveness to others. Without Jesus, we have no mechanism to forgive these kinds of, of hurtful things because we can hurt each other really deeply. In life-altering and life-shattering kind of ways, we can hurt each other. But Jesus says, the one who has accepted my forgiveness and truly understood it will be able to extend that forgiveness to others. Doesn't always mean reconciliation in relationship and And um, working together with people who have hurt you or abused you. But it does mean letting go of the offense. Because God forgave you. So faith produces fruit. What is the fruit that we're talking about? We could look at the New Testament to learn a lot about this kind of fruit. We could talk about the fruit of evangelism. We could talk about the fruit of the Spirit. But if we uh, restrict ourselves to just this passage, I think Jesus is saying this. This religious system is worthless. It's being replaced by something else. It's being replaced by my death and resurrection. And the fruit of someone who will put their faith in me is at least these four things. It's concern for the lost. It's salvation apart from works. It's faith in prayer. And it's forgiveness. It's concern for the lost. So it's saying, I exist As an ambassador of Jesus Christ, an agent of reconciliation, I am looking outward constantly to see where people are far from God and how I can help them take a step towards Jesus. It's salvation apart from works. It's knowing that there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. There's no sacrifices or religious activity that I need to perform to earn my salvation. I will perform works out of my love for Jesus, but I'm not performing works to earn love from Jesus. I'm receiving salvation on the basis of faith. I will pray with faith. I will pray often and I will pray fervently. And I will forgive others because I have been forgiven. All four of those deserve much more attention than we can give them right now. But I want to leave them with you in prayer today. Because this passage should shock us a little bit. And remind us that Jesus takes sin very seriously. And he wants to produce fruit in us, right? John 15 tells us Jesus produces the fruit. We display it. But he will only produce fruit in us if we've surrendered ourselves to him in faith. And friends, it is a scary thought. It almost brings me to tears. To think that our church or us as individuals might be like that fig tree with lots of leaves, lots of activity, lots of things going on, lots of ways that people can do stuff, but not actually produce the fruit that God wants to produce in us. Oh, may we ever be on guard against becoming like that fig tree, like those religious leaders, like those religious people. May we always be concerned about humbling ourselves before God so he may produce the fruit in us. So my invitation to you today is to take some time to sit with a journal or to sit in prayer. Say, what kind of fruit is being produced in my life? Do I have a concern for the lost? Am I placing my trust in Jesus based on faith? Am I praying with faith? And am I able to truly forgive? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you love us so deeply and that you challenge us so deeply. This story is shocking in all of the best kind of ways. It causes us to think really deeply about who we are and how we live. Jesus, we want to be a people, we want to be a church that produces fruit for your kingdom. We don't want to be a place of dead religion. Help us to be growing disciples who are discipling others who are reaching out to the lost. Thank you for your sacrifice, which makes it possible for us to have a relationship with you. Give us strength as we follow you. May we display the fruit of your kingdom in our lives and in our church, we pray. Amen.